So if you follow me on social media, you're aware that a few days ago, my dog Norma died. And I'm crushed. I'm not as crushed as I was in the immediate aftermath, but I'm still really broken. I write from home, and Norma was my co-host, my colleague, my friend. Oftentimes she plopped down beside me, falling asleep to the sound of keys tapping away. People sometimes ask how I break out of writer's block. And the answer is Norma, taking her for a walk, rubbing her belly, turning to her and asking, who's better, Billy Sims or Freeman McNeil? Then staring as she sort of tilted her head in that way. My dog knew nothing about sports or politics or human nature. I doubt she knew my name. But for 12 years, she was loyal and steadfast and always available. Thank you, Norma, for being there. My name is Jeff Perlman, and I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Alan Shipnuck, the Golf Magazine senior writer and former Sports Illustrated prodigy. This is episode number 161. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. Alan, first of all, obviously. Thank you for doing this. It's old home week on the podcast, so I, I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for finally asking me. I mean, hey. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. All your dreams are coming true. Here's where I want to go. There's almost like this mystery with you that I've always wondered about, which is, so when you and I were coming up, SI was the place, the dream. Sports Illustrated was a dream. I know you grew up reading it. I grew up reading it. It was a place you wanted to go. And I remember when you were rising, and I was still at the Tennessean, and I kind of fucking hated you from afar, even though I didn't know you. Just because it was like, oh, the youngest staff writer in magazine history. And oh, he has a cover story as an intern. And it was like, I know that when I was working the bullpen, which is the fact-checking unit at SI, I'm sure we all hated you, except the fact you were a nice guy. And when we dealt with you, you were a really nice guy. But like, the rise to behold from afar was kind of infuriating in a jealousy way. And I actually kind of wonder, I know you met Mulvoy. Um, while you were working at Pebble Beach, I believe. Yeah. How did it happen? You were, I mean, how did it happen? Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot of um, luck and confluence of timing. Um, I just, I'm going to jump ahead just because you'll appreciate this. So when I, when I started to, to get to write, and as, as you know, this is pre-internet, and we had 30 people in the bullpen, the fact checkers, dying to get the occasional assignment, and a lot of talented people, like so much talent. and. I was out there, you know, writing these stories and pre-cell phone, I call into the, the magazine uh, to talk to Bambi Wolf, like who's fact checking my story that week. And she's like, it's Jaffe. It's like, oh God. So Michael Grant Jaffe, who's now become a successful novelist, but was a grumpy mofo, big intimidating guy, played like college hockey, loved to haze me. And uh, he's fact checking my story, which, you know, it's just a subservient role any way you cut it. I mean, I didn't look at it that way, but and that's how it feels, right? And so I'm like, Jesus Christ. I call up Jaffe. I'm like, hey, it's Alan Shipnack. And there's this long pause. And he says, the gods must be mocking me. And <laughs> it's like the jaffiest moment ever. <laughs> so, yeah. So that speaks to what you're, yeah. A lot of people hated me. I'm sorry. But, um. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, I did grow up reading SI from the time I was about 10 years old. It was, it was always my dream. And I did the junior high newspaper. I was the editor of that. I was the editor of the, the high school yearbook. 
when I was a junior in high school, I started writing for the, uh, the Salinas Californian Circulation 50,000. Pretty good little newspaper, actually. You were 16 years old, right, when you started? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and there was literally a, a little ad in the page two that said sports writers needed. And um, I called them up. Said, yeah, I think I could do this. And so I went to UCLA. And the Daily Bruin in the mid-90s was going gangbusters. I mean, this is actually early 90s. And, um, you know, we had... 30 pages a, a day of sports. The paper was like two inches thick every day. It was just incredible because we had all the ad money pouring in from Brentwood and Santa Monica and Westwood. And so by the time I was like, you know, 19, 20 years old, I was pretty about as experienced as you could possibly be. And I did meet Mark Mulvoy, legendary um, editor who we both know. And um, he's quite a character. I met him on the first heat Pell Beach. I was a cart boy. And that led to a two-year correspondence. What year was that when you first met him? Mobile. That was it was actually, it was the spring of 1991. I was I was a senior in high school, and uh, I I was I was about to graduate, and I'd started working at Pebble as a customer service representative. Those less delicate with the language would call you a cart boy. You know, a shining clubs for tips. Incredible job. I mean, it was like the greatest summer job ever. And uh, I met Mulvey that first summer, and I ran up to him, and of course. I saw his name on the T-sheet, and as you recall from those days, they had that pub memo uh, signed by Mark Mulvoy, and so I knew who he was. I've been I've been reading the magazine for you know half my life at that point, and um, and so I gave him a sales pitch. You know, said my dream in life was to write for his magazine. This guy runs the greatest magazine in history. I'm 18 years old. Yeah, you know, he didn't have much. He didn't have a job for me on the spot, put it that way. But he did give me his card, and I kept in touch with him. Like every every couple months, I'd send him a letter. And um, in fact, Joan Rosinski was the one who would open them. You remember Joni? Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, she's a character. Um, but he, so Mulvoy came back again two summers later. So this is now 93. And I knew he was coming. I was waiting for him on the first tee. And, you know, I don't think he ever read the letters, but he knew they existed. I guess that showed a certain initiative. And the timing was absolutely perfect because in January of 94, SI was going to launch Golf Plus, which as some old timers will remember, was like this, this insert that went in the weekly magazine that was just, you know, supplemental golf coverage. And uh, it was conceived as a very small little thing, probably just so Mulvoy could get free gear from the manufacturers. And, um, but that was a specific moment in time in the, in the golf equipment industry when the great big Bertha had, had been launched and all the, the manufacturers were, were spending money like crazy to advertise. And so all of a sudden, we had to fill these, you know, additional edit pages. And so it went golf plus one for me in four or six pages a week to 25 or 30. I mean, it was like, it just got huge. And they literally had no writers except for um, Jaime Diaz and Rick Lipsy. Remember Lipsy? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Lipsy's a character. And I love Jaime. I love Rick. They're wonderful people, but neither is like prolific or, or yeah. super, you know, <laughs> they're not like deadline writers. And this was coming out every week. And so just, just because I was in the right place at the right time and because Mulvoy was my patron saint and, uh, you know, he, he didn't even know the names of half the guys in the bullpen, let alone interns, but we had this connection because of the Pebble Beach thing. And so he was kind of, I think, behind the scenes telling the golf editor to, to give me some, some assignments. And, um, you know, they, they were started out small and they got bigger. And um, Wait, you were getting I, assignments before you interned? It was no. It was when my my internship started. So I so I met him in, in August of '93, and I FedExed him all my daily Bruin clips and um, you know a cover letter. And he called me, you know, and said, eh, "This stuff's not bad. I'm I'm going to give you an internship." And you know they had that whole summer internship program 
where you know, the kids would stay in the NYU dorms. It was like an established thing, but he, you know, Mulvoy was the god of SI. He just snapped his fingers and created this position, and he sent his his secretary out um, to find me a place to live, which turned out to be this beautiful studio on the Upper East Side. And you know, he just just we were just winging it. So for how I long? To, Wait, for how long? So it was it was it was eight month commitment. So I showed up on January second, nineteen ninety four, in a blizzard. You know, my uncle Sheldon picked me up at, at the airport and, you know, I had like one coat, you know, I was a California guy. And, um, and I was going to stay through August and then go back to school at UCLA. And so, um, you know, for the first two months, basically I did nothing because the golf editor, Myra Gelband, um, she, she was not really happy I was there. She didn't hire me. You know, Mulvoy just dumped her, dumped me in her lap. And it's like, here, take care of this kid. And, and so she was a little overwhelmed. Golf Plus had just blown up and she had nothing for me to do. And I wasn't really part of the bullpen staff. And I think Bambi Wolf, who oversaw that whole crew, was like, I don't, this is not my problem. So uh, remember there was, in the hallways, they had those bound volumes of, of the old magazines. And of course. Little, yeah. Those. I love those. Yeah. I pretty much read every word of every Sports <laughs> Illustrated for two months. I just sat at my desk. I was getting paid. Um, and I'd, I'd hang out in the library. I, I know you wrote an ode to the SI library. It's a wonderful place. Best place ever. Best place ever. Yeah. So it was like, all right, I'm going to take advantage of this and educate myself. And, um, you know, Mulvoy would occasionally invite me to these kind of high level editorial meetings that I'm sure most interns didn't get to go to. But again, he's like, hey, kid, uh, yeah, I got the new Callaway Big Bertha sent to me. Uh, come down and check it out. I think the, the, you know, the shaft's a little stiff. Give it a swing. You know, like we had this, this weird golf connection and he loved golf. And, um, um, but because there was just this opportunity to write these stories and I had sort of been training for it my whole life, as ridiculous as that sounds, since I was 20 years old, um, I just took advantage of the opportunity. So it was definitely the right place, the right time, uh, a lot of luck, a little bit of ability, and it all just, just kind of happened. Wait, I have some questions here. So were you looking back now? I'm sure you would say you're a better writer now than you were then. I would hope you would say that. Um, were you at age 20 a Sports Illustrated caliber? You know, obviously there's the Rick Riley's and the Steve Russians and the DeFords. And that. Were you of that caliber? Well, I mean, you know, those guys, uh, you know, no. But um, I've gone back and I've read some of the stories. And I'm, I have to say they, they, they're not bad. They hold up. and. Right. The, you've, it's so funny talking about these old characters because you know them. Joe Marshall, you know, who was like this totally uptight, waspy, Ivy League guy, as most, a lot of the editors were, which is sort of the dark secret of, 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 of Sports Illustrated. I mean, um, it was a very preppy place. And, um, and you know, Joe was – he was a, a particular character, but he was kind of overseeing the golf plus thing, so I, had, I dealt with him a lot. But I remember him saying to me um, one time uh, as late in my internship after I'd done a bunch of stories and um, I was kind of, it was, I was sitting in his office and I wasn't quite out the door yet. I think I had like maybe three weeks left, but it sort of felt like a goodbye conversation. He's like, well, the only golf writer we have doesn't need to be edited. And, um, you know, that was a guy who lived to like jerk around with your, your copy. Yeah. And, um, so that was, you know, that was his call. Um, so I, I just, I felt like I could do it. And, um, you know, I'm, I, you know, the Ford standard, definitely not, but the, the stories were not bad. And, um, because it was just this, this, this black hole of need for, for copy and, you know, golf's a funny thing. Like 
we, as you know, the 30 or 40 people in the bullpen who were dying to write stories, they weren't like beating down the golf editor's door. You know, it, it's right. just, it's not football, basketball or baseball. Um, and in, it was still, this is pre tiger woods. Not that tiger changed things a lot from a demographic standpoint, but at least he made the game cooler. And so, the, you know, it was still kind of a, a stuffy country club sport and, um, it was, there was just opportunity. And, uh, so I was, I was, I was happy to get, get the at bats and, um, you know, I, I had some ground rule doubles. I don't think I had any home runs, but well, um, well, I was thinking like, um, all right, so you're an intern. It's 1994. It's August of 1994. So that means at that point I was beginning my career at the Nashville, Tennessee and reading SI and, you know, like dreaming of SI and you're an intern at the magazine and you have a fucking cover story on Ken Griffey Jr., right? <laughs> and I just have to think, if those people in the bullpen, I wasn't there yet, didn't hate you yet, like, oh, look, the intern has a cover story on Ken Griffey Jr. in Sports Illustrated. Let's find a way to kill him. How did that even, how did that even happen? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it was funny. <laughs> Paul Gutierrez one time, I think it was a Sunday night and everyone had, had like maybe a few drinks. I can't remember exactly. But I remember I was carrying some books coming down the hallway. And he like knocked them out of my hand. It was like that, like in a high school movie, you know, the bully. And, you know, he was a big dude. Right? Wasn't he, like, he was like in karate and shit. Yep. And uh, like that was one like overt act of hostility <laughs> that just sort of happened. It's like that was weird. We hadn't even <laughs> said anything to each other. Um, yeah, I mean, the way I understand it, and this is what Mulvoy told me, and I've never actually fact-checked it with, with, our, with our, the god of baseball writing, Tom Verducci, but um, Mulvoy said that Verducci and Ken Griffey Sr. had some bad juju going back. <laughs> and so they were not inclined to participate in a story with Verducci. And so, the, um, you know, they were like, well, we need a Griffey story. Because 94, you know, he had 35 home runs at the All-Star break. Nike had just signed him. Like, he'd really blown up. And, um, you know, I think he was 22 years old and they're like, well, how about ship duck? You know, the same age he's, he's been, he's been on a little, little streak here. And so they're like, yeah, it's just whatever that I got the assignment. And again, this was because, you know, Mulvoy and I had this weird connection. Um, you know, I hadn't done any baseball. And as you recall, like the, the leadership of SI back in those days, they were all baseball nerds, the, yeah. the Bowers, the Flaters, um peter carry peter carry like baseball was the sport they cared about the most i think yeah i mean they knew that the nfl kind of was was a behemoth but you know in their heart of hearts baseball was the sport they loved and so to break into the baseball beat was was hard i mean we had verducci we had kirkjian russian was doing baseball like that that beat was locked down and um but so whatever it was, they was sort of a lark. So they sent me to the all-star game in Pittsburgh and just to try and get an audience with junior and ask him if like he'll participate in the story. And I didn't, I didn't know my ass from my, my throwing hand at that point. Like I was just wandering around. I'd, I'd never covered a baseball game before. I mean, I've been to plenty as a fan, but you know, every beat has its own unwritten rules and, and written rules when you can be in the locker room, when you can't all this stuff, like, I had no clue. And I got a Griffey for like 10 seconds. It spent three days just trying to corral him. And I made a little pitch. He's like, yeah, you know, come to Seattle. Sure. Maybe we can work something out. He didn't really care. Even back then, uh, he just wasn't that into it. And so I'm like, great, I'll go to Seattle. And um, <laughs> this will make you laugh. So 
I didn't, you know, I was, since I was an intern, I didn't have a corporate Amex. Like I had my, my UCLA visa card that I was traveling on the credit, you know, the, the monthly limit was like $500. And like, I was constantly <laughs> maxed out begging them. Like, I, I, I used my mom's credit card for some shit. Like it was, it was ridiculous. So I, I come out of SeaTac airport and I'm like, I don't even have a place to stay. I hadn't even figured it out. It, everything was happening really fast. Cause I didn't know if I was going to even get Griffey. So I went right from Pittsburgh, flew to Seattle and I just go to the first motel I see just like some crappy airport motel which probably rented rooms by the hour and again this is pre-cell phones like this, this is 1994 it's such a different era and that the way you, you know you had to give your editor your your hotel number so, you, so and they, they gave me mike bevins to was overseeing this story oh yeah right did you get a little twitch did your eyelid just twitch oh like, my god yeah ptsd i still experience yes yeah i mean not your listeners have probably heard mike bevins stories but he was he was this grumpy old hard-ass editor everyone was afraid of and me especially and so i, I called bevins and he's like where are you staying i'm like oh i'm at the SeaTac motor inn and he's like um si riders not stay at the SeaTac motor inn check out immediately and go check into the four seasons <laughs> like okay sure <laughs> and so i'm in i'm in i'm in seattle um i always contend when the sun is shining in seattle it's one of the most glorious places in the world so I'm hanging out in Seattle, having a great time. But Griffey has no knowledge or no memory of our conversation. Like he's not giving me the time of day. He doesn't care. He's overwhelmed, burnt out already. And um, so, you know, I'm there for like two or three days. Like I basically have nothing. But um, I, uh, and in those days, I don't know if it's even changed. I haven't covered baseball in a long time. But all the friends and family would hang out um, by the lock, you know, the clubhouse yeah. back door. Yeah. And so, I was doing that one night and I kind of picked up who Griffey's people where he was living with like some high school buddies um, in some big house and you know, they're just partying all the time. And so he had a friend. Uh, I never, I don't think I ever knew the guy's real name. Everyone just called him Jojo. So I'm talking to Jojo and he's like so happy to talk to a reporter. You know, there's always like one guy like that. You just have to identify yeah. them. And so he's giving me all kinds of great stuff, you know, about the girls and the partying and, and junior comes out of the clubhouse and he like he picks up on this and he literally puts his arm around my shoulder and he like he steers me away and he's like man i can't have you talking to jojo and i'm like well ken you know i'm i'm here I'm, i got a job to do just like you do and you keep blowing me off and so i'm sorry but you know i just i got to talk to whoever i, I got to talk to jojo i got to talk to jojo <laughs> and so so junior's like fine you know be in my locker tomorrow at 10 a.m. like great and so we we you know i'm there 9:30, and we, we talked for like an hour he's like hey nice meeting you i gotta go hit you know good luck with the story i'm like yeah i just don't have quite enough man I, you know i'd hate to have to go back to jojo <laughs> and i'll never forget this he goes motherfucker be here tomorrow at 10 and that's it and so so i got i got two one-on-ones for like an hour and um you know at that point i didn't i don't know it's gonna be a cover story i didn't you know i knew it was a big opportunity that that was obvious but um and of course, that turned out to be the strike year. And, you know, Frank Thomas was hitting what three ninety four, whatever, at the break. And um, so Riley was doing a Frank Thomas piece, and and Walter Yo shot them together. Um, I think he actually came at the All Star game. This really cool, like brooding, yeah. beautifully lit cover. I mean, it's just really, irrespective of the fact that I had a, a part in it, it's one of my favorite SI covers. It's really, it's just really gorgeous um, photograph. And um, so yeah, the, the, so. It was a cover, Riley. You know, Riley 
he did the Thomas story. I mean, obviously Walter Yost and Rick Riley are first ballot hall of famers. So are Frank Thomas and Ken Griffey Jr. <laughs> like I don't quite belong in the conversation, but it's cool that, um, uh, the way it all came to be. And so, yeah, that definitely, you know, secured my, my employment after college. You're 21 years old. Yeah. And you have a mat. And, and at the time there was nothing bigger. I would argue in sports media than being on the cover of Sports Illustrated and certainly being a writer and having a cover story. It's, I think every writer who's had a cover story at Sports Illustrated remembers their first cover story at Sports Illustrated and what it meant to them. You're 20 fucking one years old. Do you remember like that feeling or do you remember someone telling you it's going to be the cover? Do you remember anything of that? For sure. So it, it, was, not, it was not done on a super tight deadline. I feel like I, I turned in, you know, maybe seven to 10 days. So it, it, it was around the office for a little while before it popped. And, um, and I remember it was actually, it was Joe Marshall and he, he walked by and he's like, Hey, congratulations. I said, thanks. What for? He's like, Oh, you haven't seen this? I said, no. And he like kind of slammed it on my desk. It was a mock-up of the cover. And I was like, wow. just looking at it. I was like, Holy cow. And, uh, you know, he just gave me this sort of knowing smile and strolled off. It was, it was actually sort of cinematic. It was cool. Um, so yeah, I definitely remember that. And of course, you know, coming in the office, um, and they're all, you know, as they used to get just, they're strewn everywhere. And, um, yeah, it was, it was cool. I mean, I definitely abused the, um, corporate FedEx account. I was, I was sending them all over the country, like every aunt, uncle, cousin, you know, high school buddy. Like I probably sent out 50 magazines. Ridiculous. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. And then, you know, one of the things is it's not quite as prevalent now, but there used to be a, a newsstand in every corner in New York City in those days. And so, you know, it's, you're just kind of walking around the city. There it is. Boom, boom, boom. It's, you're just sort of float, floating from corner. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was amazing. I actually, um, I was thinking about what something. Was My first cover was a Mariner too. It was, a, it was Ichiro. Oh, nice. It was Ichiro in, I think, 2001 or 2000. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I don't have a frame, but it was a huge... I do have an SI frame behind me, though, cover frame behind me, and that is um, they excerpted my Walter Payton book, and my mother-in-law bought me the cover frame, so it's up there for my mother-in-law. But, um, <laughs> nice. you know, you do. All right, so you had, you had the internship. Then you went back to – you actually went back to UCLA then, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll never forget. Mulvoy calls me down to his office. He's like, oh, hey, kid, you know, I'm so proud of you, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, he's like, I'd hire you right now, but your parents would hate me. You know, go finish your degree. And then, you know, we'll, we'll hire you the day you graduate. So I had, I had five quarters left at UCLA, so I went back. And I, in fact, I had a, I was a communications major with, with a, a minor in print journalism. And so I had some journalism classes, and I tried not to be cocky about it, but, like, I was cutting class and, like, flying off and doing stories because they made me a special contributor for that, oh that year and a half. Yeah. And, um, and, like, you know, the assignment was to write a thousand-word story for the journalism class, like, I remember one time I put like the magazine down on my professor's desk. He's like, can I just submit this story? You know, is this week's issue? Like, no, I'm sorry. You have to write, you still have to write this shit assignment. So it's like, oh, man. And, and that was the other crazy thing was special contributor was kind of a, a title they gave to like the old timers as they were, they were, they kind of being put out yeah. to pass. They would do maybe one story a year or not even that, but, because golf plus still had this need, I was writing a ton and it had this crazy pay scale. It was like three to $5,000 a story. And so I would like, I went to the U S open. I wrote like two stories and a sidebar and I got checked like $8,000. I was like a junior in college. Amazing. Like totally crazy. They're like, are you dealing drugs? Like, what are you doing? Are you dealing drugs? Are you a coke dealer? <laughs> that was, that was the U S open at Shinnecock in 95. Like, 
I remember I had, I had a Wednesday final and I took it. I drove right to the airport. I caught the red eye to um, JFK. And then I, I drove out to, to Shinnecock, you know, the Eastern end of Long Island, got there about eight in the morning, right as the U S open was going and, you know, staying in a house with, with Riley and John Garrity and Jaime Diaz and, you know, and Sally Jenkins, like the, the amount of talent we had covering this one golf tournament was just ridiculous. And, and that was the other thing is like, actually, I think two of those stories are that were assigned to Sally and she was kind of, you know, she had been sort of marginalized at Sports Illustrated. She never really found her niche there and she wasn't happy and she wound up moving on to the Washington Post not too long afterwards. And she would say to me, yeah, they want me to write, you know, 1500 words on Greg Norman. You want to do it? I'm like, hell yeah. Right. <laughs> I'll take it. I want the byline, but it was also, Hey, that's like, that's how it's also a lot of money. That's how I paid for college. So like Sally was constantly saying to me, you want to do this story for, I was like, of course I do. So oh my God. It was just funny things like that. I was gathering Verducci's table scraps, like anything Verducci wanted to throw off the table. I you know, Alfonso Soriano. Okay. You know, whatever. Yeah. Give it to me. I'm well, happy. Of course. I mean, you're, you're, you're starving for those opportunities. So, I mean, it was, it was uh, it was so many things like that that I was just helped me along the way, and you know you probably, uh, I mean Verducci's I think he's probably a pretty generous mentor, but the guys on the golf beat were were great. You know Riley actually was interestingly was still quite competitive even though I was you know twenty one twenty two years old like, I, you know he's such an insecure guy for all he's accomplished and you know back then he was the, the king of the world. And there was still that little competitive undercurrent with him, but I did learn a heck of a lot watching him. He's, he's a, a good stylist. He's, 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 I was a great joke writer, but he was a really terrific reporter and he was so jealous of his material. Like I really learned that from Rick. Like when you have something that's really good, you got to protect it. Don't tell anyone, don't let it out. You know, it's like this little, this little secret you're saving for your copy. Do you remember when, um, I remember my first time as a, uh, when I was promoted to staff writer, and they were, I mean, this is, I don't even know how a modern, like a sports writer under the age of 40 or 35 could even un- relate with this, but they would fly in every writer around the holiday time and they would have the state of sports illustrated meeting. And then they would have this $200,000 bash where everyone would get wasted. And like, and it was, I remember being in my first one, right. And being surrounded, like there's Gary Smith. There's Rick Riley, there's Phil Taylor, there's Frank, DeVoe, whoever, like, I, f- I always say, I felt like Leitner on the dream team, you know, like, why I'm not, I don't really belong here. I just think, oh, yeah. I don't think current writers coming up sports writers can possibly imagine the fucking magic of writing for Sports Illustrated at that time period. In 95, we, we all went to Orlando. I mean, I was still an undergrad. Were you part of that trip? No, because I got there in 96 and everyone, they went to the Olympics in 96, right before I got there. Yeah, I went to the Olympics. We in '95 we took over Grand Cypress Resort in Orlando. The entire staff flew in. Everyone got to their own room, and you could you could expense anything. So room service. Remember, we had, we had like this suite, and we're all up there drinking, like the whole staff, like 100 people. And Lee Montville calls down and ordered like 500 bottles of of beer from from room service. The tap was like $20,000 or something. Like, Whose room is that going to go on? It's like, oh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so I remember, I, for, I don't know how this happened, but I want to, in a hot tub drinking like Michelobes with, with Riley and Gary Smith. And they're like talking about the craft of, of writing. And I just like, I didn't say a word. I was just soaking it all in. And yeah. The Olympics was like that too. And everyone went to Atlanta. We, 
I mean, the best part of the job was the dinners and the hanging out and, and, you know, I feel like we didn't really talk about sports. We talked about writing and we talked about, um, you know, how to do it. And it was so educational. Uh, I never worked with smarter people. That's the one thing I would say. Like when I went, I, I went from the Tennessean to a daily newspaper to Sports Illustrated. The Tennessean was an excellent newspaper and they were great people. I remember getting to Sports Illustrated and just being overwhelmed by the intellect and how smart people were and the, the awareness and the conversations and the detail and the precision. And I just thought that was something that really stuck with me. I mean, I'm a West Coast guy, so the whole Ivy League thing is different, but no doubt, unless you're Jared Kushner, I mean, you got to be really smart to go to an Ivy League school, right? So that, that, there was that, <laughs> that, that feeling of, um, you know, people. And this is also, you know, the Russian, Steve Russian influence was strong, like the John Walters, Tim Crothers. It was sort of like this game of, can you top this and like the obscure references in the copy, right? And, oh, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, uh, so yeah, everyone was hyper literate, not only in, in, in literature, but uh, you know, in movies and music and, and all of it. And it was, yeah, it was definitely, you could, you could, you could feel it. The conversations would sort of crackle. And that, that was, that was really, I agree. That was a really cool part of it because, you know, for me, I've never really worked in a newsroom other than the daily Bruin, which was also a lot of smart people, but uh, you know, we don't, we didn't know what we were right. doing, but I didn't have that experience of kind of working at a bunch of newspapers and coming up and, and having all th- that kind of uh exposure. So all I ever really knew was, was the SI. And as you get out into the world and, you know, we get older and you realize, man, that was a pretty special group of people. And uh, I definitely, I miss that. And I miss that camaraderie. And, you know, it's sad to see what's become of Sports Illustrated, but, um, and we were, we weren't even there in the glory days, right? I mean, the sixties and seventies, yeah. Andre, Andre Laguerre, like those, like, but we still caught enough of it to kind of, to, to know right. how good, how good it was. I remember um, being with Mike Bamberger. We were covering the playoffs in Atlanta, and I was sitting next to him in the press box. And first, he knew the guitarist to R.E.M. I had no idea how he knew the guitarist to R.E.M., but the guy was there, and he's like, hey. And, and then Bamberger said something to me I'll never forget. I think I was probably staying at, like, the CNN Center in Atlanta because we had a special rate, and it was, like, one fifty a night. And Bamberger says to me, <laughs> he goes, my philosophy is this. I should be as comfortable on the road as I am at home. If that costs 400 a night, that's fine. And I was like, this is the best job ever. This is the best job ever. I think he was, I think he was paraphrasing Peter Carey, who, who had told that to Bamberger like when he was being hired. And um, we, still, we still trot that line out regularly. And um, I know, actually, um, I got scolded for, um, for, like, I had this huge room service bill um, for a breakfast and uh, the business person was saying, you know, $80 is very excessive for breakfast. And this is recently, this is my, you know, a golf magazine. And like, you know, would you eat this much food at home? I said, yeah, actually I would probably every now and then I want to make pancakes and have bacon and I'll have a green smoothie to wash it down and, you know, a bowl of berries. And unfortunately when you're at a nice hotel, it costs $80. But, um, <laughs> I don't do that very often. I'm more like a yogurt parfait guy, but um, yeah, it, I mean, that was another Bamberger story he's told me, which I love is he, um, he did, he got thrown on a tour to France one year and he got, he got called in by um, Nina Prado, our, our business person, you know, yeah. back in the day, she was a, a legendary character and she's called him for not spending enough because, 
because he was going to make it hard for the next year's guy. You know, Michael only spent $300 a night on his hotels. And, you know, whereas it, usually you spend four or 500 if you're in France. And so he set a bad example on the beat. And uh, it's like, uh, God. Well, stuff like hearing these stories and telling these stories, it makes me, it's very mixed emotions. Like it, I love hearing it. I love thinking about it, but it's so bygone. And it just is kind of, cr- I mean, it was, I, this is what I always say, but you may, and you may have a different perspective, you may disagree. It's felt like the goal was just put out a great magazine, right? The best story you can write no matter what. And that's it. And like Bill Colson wasn't, you know, it was, we just want the best magazine. We just want the best stories. And I don't know if that exists anywhere anymore. Yeah. There, I mean, there was, it really, it didn't matter how much you spent in your hotel room because a, a one page ad was $400,000 and Ford and Chrysler and they were all lining up to spend that. And so, you know, the magazine was making so much money that, that the cost of putting, of putting it out was trifling compared to what was coming in. Uh, and of course now every dollar is, is so important and, um, and it's, it's a constant balance of, we want to put out the best magazine or the best website or the best whatever, but these are the constraints and these are the parameters. And we just never had to think like that in, in those days. And, you know, it is, it is bittersweet. It's also, you know, it, you, you, you take that kind of waste that you and I didn't really participate in like, like the old timers did, but still, and you multiply that times uh, every magazine in the company and it's like no wonder Time Inc. went broke you know yeah. they, they it was just it was such a bloated organization and they were so slow to react to the internet and the whole landscape changed before they even knew what was happening uh, and so it's it's sad not only SI but all of Time Inc. I mean it was an empire of great journalism and it's just gone the company doesn't even exist anymore most of the magazines are defunct or struggling. And um, so, yeah, I think you and I had just enough awareness of what was going on around us. Kind of look back. Yeah, it makes sense. No wonder like these dinosaurs went out of business. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who on behalf of 503 Sports Kings of the Throwback Sports Merchandise has a public service announcement she's written for the occasion. You ready? I guess so. All right, go ahead. Hi, I'm Casey Perlman, and on behalf of 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, and on behalf of 503-sports.com, stop being stupid and start wearing a mask. And if you're the one idiot who keeps walking into my local Costco without a mask, thinking you're all Sean Hannity, thinking you're all Mike Gundy, cut the crap. You're a moron. Thank you. Aren't you forgetting something? Oh, yeah. Buy a jersey and the kids will stop laughing at you. If you look now, looking back, do you feel like you can pinpoint something that SI did wrong that kind of led to this point? Or is this just what it is and it was inevitable to a certain degree? So remember Steve Robinson? He was this sort of this crusty old newspaper guy. He, he was in charge of CNNSI.com, you know, this, yeah. this, this funky little venture on the internet, which, um, uh, but I, one thing we did wrong, like, I remember, I distinctly remember getting my first email address and it was because I was doing some freelance work and the people I was dealing with were incredulous that I didn't have an email address through SI. I had to call one up and say, do we have email? Like, what is email? And, you know, like we were, we were already a year or two behind people just on the basics. Um, yeah. Peter Carey, his cell phone policy was, well, 
we'll, we'll pay for the, the charges, but you have to pay for the monthly fee. I was like, that's not how it works, Peter. The charges are the monthly fee. We just get a little bit like, you know, it didn't make any, like it was, we just didn't even get it. We had all these old, you know, 50, 60 year old dudes and they'd been doing it the same way their whole life. And, but so anyway, so I remember Steve Robinson, I sat in on this meeting. I, I this was probably 98. I was living in New York at that time. And, um, he said, wait a minute, we're just going to give, give Rick Riley away for free on the website. It's like, people are paying for the magazine to read it. But we're going to give it away for free. He's like, that makes no sense. Wow. And everyone's like, well, that's what they do, Steve. And, um, if the whole world had had Steve Robinson's perspective at the turn of the century and everything had come with a paywall and the consumers just accepted that as what it cost, you know, the entire media landscape would be so different, but everyone gave everything away for free. Um, and now we're in this weird predicament where people, you know, you'll, you'll pay to stream a movie and you'll, you'll, you'll pay on iTunes for your music and you'll, you'll pay on Kindle for your books, but everyone wants journalism for free and it has a cost to produce. I mean, we're just in this, um, this twilight zone. I mean, all the, all the layoffs and furloughs going on, not just at sports illustrated right now, but across the entire media landscape, it's depressing. So, uh, I don't think, I don't think SI was the only organization to miss the boat. I mean, the, the entire print journalism failed to understand what it was going to mean to, to give all their content away for free. But, um, we didn't ask the right questions back then. And, um, you know, the website, our, the SI website was always bad. I mean, I don't know why they, they've never been able to figure it out. It looked no. bad, it slow to load. We just, you know, SI just never figured out the internet until it was way too late. And they, they just lost so much ground at every juncture. And I think, I don't know if that, that, that was partly was institutional because people running it were old and out of touch. And partly, like I guess, had the wrong people in the wrong positions. I don't know. You, it was it was cultural. It was personal. It was it was uh, it was structural. But I mean, Sports Illustrated never ever figured out the internet, and that's ultimately uh, you know these Maven guys when they came in and bought it. That was their whole sales pitch. We're going to finally solve the internet for SI. You know, this is in 2019 or whatever. Wow. I mean, Twenty years into this, 25 years into this whole um, digital revolution, and SI is still trying to figure it out. I mean, it's pathetic. I just, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Peter Carey and I remember, um, I did a story when I was a baseball writer on a Mets outfielder named Derek Bell. And, um, this is how SI was never, I will say SI was never, they had some cool writers, but the, the people on top, I would not say were the most with it gang of people. And, um, I get a call from Linda Marsh, longtime reporter. And she goes, Jeff, I have a, uh, I have a really embarrassing question, but I have to ask you. Peter said, I have to ask you. I go, go ahead. She goes, he wants to know. <laughs> Is it hip? Is it hip hip music or hip hop music? I was like, yeah, it's hip hop. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, you could do an entire podcast with Mike Silver about all the references that the editors did not get in his copy. Like, oh yeah, it was just unbelievable. And that was a funny thing when when I was an intern, you know, I had this big printer right next to my desk, and the raw copy on Sunday mornings would just start printing out. And I loved to. That was also highly educational. Was reading the stories before they got edited and then listening to the editors, you know, the doors were always open. You could hear the conversations, talk about the stories and pick them apart. And then um, you could go into these software programs and see who had changed what and why and all their embedded comments. I mean, it was obnoxious. It was hard to read and it was, but uh, it was, it was educational. It was instructional. And, 
And then you'd see the finished story, which sometimes was nominally improved. Usually it was, it was watered down, um, you know, but whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I dealt with a lot of editors when I was an intern and I got to listen to them and, um, it was, you could, you could not find a more square group of, of people when it came to, you know, uh, Kurt event, not, well, not, they were into politics and, and that sort of thing, but they didn't get hip hop. No, if you made a Tupac reference, you were going nowhere that magazine. Yeah. Pop culture. That was so over their head. Uh, and, and, but ironic is because the writers were, who were young and, and pretty cool. And so that was part of the, the cultural problem at Sports Illustrated as it played out when, when the internet came and everything became Bill Simmons voice. SI never captured that. I mean, it was yep. still kind of, it was still kind of old and it was still um, a little, a little traditional, a little conservative. So that, that was another issue that I think ultimately led to the magazine's demise. It was, it was kind of like a, like a, like a middle-aged successful country club kind of guy was the typical reader. That's because that's who founded it and that's who ran it. And yeah. um, the internet kind of changed the, the, the demographics of the readership in a big way. Of all the guys you worked with, of all the guys we worked with, all the writers, sadly I say guys, because it was, it was not a very progressive place when it came to hiring women, when it came to hiring minorities. I mean, um, but of all the writers we worked with, who would you say was the most naturally gifted writer we worked with? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, there was, there was such this cult of Steve Russian in, in that era. Like everybody wanted to be Russian. Like it, yeah. the word play and the, the, the the references like he was the master at that and he was like a knuckleball pitcher who came along and won 20 and everyone was like how's he doing that that's he was just different no one had ever seen anything like that i know and it was not it was you couldn't reproduce it like no. i remember he, he he came to the british open one year i want to say i think it was 98 yeah and when, when marco mira won and uh I'm sitting in the press room next to me. He was right. I think he was writing the back page column. Maybe Riley was on vacation or maybe Riley had already left. Yes. I can't remember, but he was doing a one page column. And I was like, so what are you writing this week? Steve? He was like, I don't know, but I've already got 600 words. I need 150 and I'm done. <laughs> it was just all jokes. And, uh, you know, but it, he was so, so good that he could pull it off. But, um, the most gifted, I mean, I mean, in some ways, I would say Alexander Wolf because he was so graceful. He was such a great reporter. He kind of, you know, and I just had this conversation. Um, actually, Matt Janella, who was the SI photo editor, has now gone on to um, do a lot of other things. He's got a podcast. We were talking about this, you know, the difference between being, being a, a writer and being a reporter and how they're, they're different jobs in some ways. And um, like a guy like Alexander Wolf was both, you know. Yeah. He, um, you could do both parts of the job. I don't know. What, what's your answer to that? I always saw Riley was just, yeah. yeah. I, it always, I don't know if you feel this way when Riley was catching shit from everyone at, you know, toward the end at ESPN and he's copying his old lines and blah, blah, blah. I found myself, even though there was some truth to it, and I think he would agree that he was kind of, you know, he just get tired of doing it after a while. I always found myself very defensive because it just felt like you guys don't understand how good this guy was and how good talented this guy is. And you have to allow for people to get a little bored and a little, I mean, it's just, it's hard to keep up what you were doing at 30 at 50 or I don't know. I always thought he was a very unique voice at that yeah. magazine. If, if you're under 30, 35 and you only know Riley from ESPN, the magazine, like his long form stuff was just so fantastic. The I, I he was a great columnist too, but um, again, 
part of what made Riley, he was a tremendous reporter and the columns, he went from being uh, a reporter to, to being more like Steve Russian, where it's all about just trying to make people laugh and or cry or whatever. Right. But yeah. And the reporting was, was taken out of it. And that was what he was so great at. And so like his long form stuff really holds up. I mean, if you go back and read any, the March yeah. shop piece to me is like his, the March yeah. shop piece is my favorite of all time. Yeah. Well, if you ever read his story on Jim Murray, the LA, LA oh, yeah. time columnist, all time class and his, his deadline pieces, you know, from especially the golf majors were, were, were phenomenal because it was so much reporting. Uh, and then there was always like some, some, some classic Rileyisms that made you laugh, but the guts of it was, was the observations and all the people he talked to and all those little nuggets that he squirreled away, like we were talking about earlier. And so, yeah, I mean, Riley's a great choice. He, uh, free, free to the question. He, he was, he was a unique talent and, I know what you mean by that defensiveness because it's become so, um, you know, just bagging on him has become such a pose, but he, he was, he was great for a really long time. Let me ask you a final thing. I always ask everyone this. What's your story of the biggest asshole moment you have, you've had in your career of covering sports? <laughs> the, the classic story is me and Phil Mickelson. So this is, um, you know, Phil and I came out more or less the same time or he's a couple of years older than I am. Um, you know, he turned pro in 92 and I was out on the beat in 94. And so we're out there a lot together. Um, and I was definitely, as we all were probably a little too cocky for whatever reason, Phil had been rankled by some things that I, I had written. And this was like probably circa 1997 or eight. I started doing this, this mailbag for CNNSI.com and, uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff like that out there. And so readers would send questions and I'd answer them. And this was back before Phil had won a major. And there was a lot of, he, was, he took a lot of abuse and he was probably a little overweight, which he would admit now. And so there was, there was like a theme in these questions where people were making fun of Phil. And I think that it was one of those deals where someone else wrote something mean in the question. I responded to it, but he took it as my words in his head over time. It just kind of got like, confused. He thought I was one who was, who was calling him fat basically. And, um, and so I had, I, I'd kind of heard through the grapevine. He was mad at me, but we hadn't had a chance to really talk about it. And so the 1999 PJ championship, um, I was doing a feature, uh, on this guy named Jarmo Sandlin, who's going to be in the Ryder cup team for Europe. And he'd had this big beef with Phil. He's actually pretending to shoot him. Like he's using his golf club as if it's a rifle, like shooting at Phil on the, in the, in the course of this match. It was like this whole thing I need. And he had all these mean things to say about Phil. So I had to get Phil's side of it. And so it's Sunday. Um, he's, he's finishing his final round. He's out of contention. So he went off early and like, you know what? I just got to do it. It's not a great place. It's real crowded behind the 18th hole. He's grumpy because he played bad, but uh, because of my deadline, if I didn't get him, it was, it was kind of now or never. So I went up and, and, and said, Hey, Phil, can I ask you a question about Jarmo? And he's like, no, I'm not going to answer it because I don't respect you as a writer. And there's like, you know, there's a kind of in the scrum of the reporters. It was like real awkward. And everyone's like, Oh, uh, okay. You know, it just sort of broke up. I was like, well, that sucked, but whatever. And I was just sort of standing there and um, he like wheeled around just to exit. And we were like sort of face to face. He's like, do you have a problem? I said, no, I really don't. I'm just standing here. You know, I asked you a question. You don't have to answer it. He's like, you know, if you have a problem, we can, we can go talk about it under the bleachers. I was like, okay, let's go talk about it. Like I was still a little confused. Like, uh -huh. And so it was, it was sort of like this tunnel, like this breezeway where 
the, um, you know, the competitors who were leaving 18 were then taking the scoring area, but it's off limit to fans. So it's, it had the, 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 the kind of illusion of being private. It wasn't really. So we go down there. And so he like kind of laid into me about all the stuff I'd written that was, you know, inappropriate and unkind. And um, I'm sort of coming back at him. And so finally he's just like, Hey, just, just throw the first punch, just throw the first punch. I was like, like right now, like he's like, just throw the first punch, man. Just do it. And I said, and by now our voices have been rising. So there's like actually fans are kind of leaning over and looking over the bleachers into the tunnel where they can see us. I was like, you know, I don't think that's going to be good for either one of us if that happens. And I'm not even mad. Like I, I, I have really no desire to throw the first punch, Phil. I mean, if, if you want to go ahead, but I don't think that's probably a good idea. And he's like, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> he like stomps off. Like, okay. I mean, uh, it was just, uh, and the funny thing is like Phil and I are cool now. Like I, last year I, I went down and hung out at his house. We wrote, we spent all day together, but it took a long time to get to that point. So that, have you ever joked that, with him about that? You know, I didn't bring it up. It's, it's, it's just Does it hang there. Does it hang there or no? Not, not anymore. Um, but I, I don't know why I haven't, I, I need to ask him about it. I wonder how much he even remembers or what his recollection of the whole thing is. It was just like, it was just so strange. And my, my overriding emotional time was sort of befuddlement, but, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, that was, I've, I've had, you know, anyway, if you do this job long enough, you're gonna have people who are mad at you. But that was the first time I had a guy like right in my face, just going off. I mean, it's, it's, it's awkward. And there's this sort of this, this power dynamic where they're the player. You sort of have to let them vent, but, um, you know, the, the throat, the offer to throw the first punch was unexpected and, yeah. and unparalleled. And um, I don't know, maybe I should have, but um, it, I really wasn't mad about anything. I, I had no desire to punch him, but um, it was just, it, it was a weird moment and uh, it stands out. But, you know, as I said, me, you know, we're, we're, we're good now, but it, it took a while. I feel like if, um, if you were hit by Mickelson and I was punched by John Rocker, you and I would never have to worry about writing another story again, man. We'd be freaking <laughs> loaded, right? This would have been the best. Phil's a lot more liquid than John Rocker. Yeah. So I <laughs> out a little better than you did. Yeah, it's a good point. I don't know. I just feel like the experiences like the Mickelson story or the John Rocker story, like your experience with Phil Mickelson, my experience with John Rocker, like at the time they're not fun, but they're really the joy of this all. Like my college roommate, a guy named Paul Dewar, I always thought he was, he had a right, he said one year, senior year, we were all going out to like get drunk and hook up. And he goes, doesn't really matter if you hook up or not. It's all about the stories. And I actually think at the end of the day, truly, it's all just all about the stories, you know? And like, if you work at Sports Illustrated during that time period, or if you even do this for a living, you're always going to have, um, McCallum said to me, Jack McCallum said to me when I was at SI, he goes, you're not going to be the richest guy, but every high school reunion, you're going to have the best stories. I know. I mean, I'm sure you have friends. I have friends. You take some, it seems like some soul crushing job, but they move up and they make a ton of money. And it's like, um, but you wouldn't trade it, right? I mean, the, the jobs we've nope. had, the lives we've led are, are so much fun. The places I've been as a, as, a, as a fan slash reporter, I mean, guys, when they become really successful, what do they want to do? They want to go to the Masters. They want to go to the Ryder Cup. They want to go to the, the NBA Finals. And, but they'll never get to be in the locker room. They'll never get to know inside the story the way you are as a reporter. So, this, I mean, McCallum's right. We, we do have the stories. 
I want to thank today's guest, Alan Shipnuck, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Shipnuck and read his stuff in Golf Magazine. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.